the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, if you'd open your Bibles back up to uh, 2 Samuel, chapter 5. If you're new with us, we've been going through this book, working our way through, and we tend quite often to take larger sections to kind of hold the narrative together and see, uh, see the big pictures uh, as, we, as we go. Thank you, uh, by the way, for being flexible today. With the, uh, we were going to be outside and decided to be in. I think it was a good choice. So just keep your eye on the, on the website to know, I think I'm going to bring this down a little bit, to know where, uh, where we're going to be, whether we're going to be indoors or outdoors. Hopefully if the weather's nice, we'll be able to be outdoors on the lawn uh, for our services. Um, I also just want to say I heard that it is uh, Jeff and Susan Crouch's 44th wedding anniversary today, and I think they're here somewhere, but uh, if you see them, make sure you congratulate them. They've been with us a long time. So, 2 Samuel 5, I said when we started this series that our link to this, uh, this ancient text is, uh, is, and what makes it relevant to us as modern Christians is the simple idea of the kingdom of God. You see, as Christians, we are kingdom, kingdom of God people. It's who we are. It's, it's what we're about. When Jesus was announced at his birth by the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1, he was announced as the one who would take the throne of his father David, linking us all the way back to this Davidic kingship, and that his kingdom, of, the, of his kingdom, there would be no end. And when he started his public ministry, he came as God's king, Jesus Christ, the Christ, the king. And he came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. We see that at the beginning of Luke, at the beginning of Mark. And he taught parables about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 13. And he was constantly talking about how one could enter his kingdom, Matthew 18, 3. And in the book of Acts, uh, chapter, chapter 1, right after his, his post-resurrection, when he's teaching his disciples, this is what it says, chapter 1, verse 3, to them he presented himself alive after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God of God. Jesus was and is God's king, bringing in his kingdom. And in the epistles, when it, you know, the, the letters to the churches that speak, of, that speak about how we should live as, as Christians, it says that we are people that have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into his kingdom, Colossians 1.3. So it were referred to in, in, in the fourth chapter of that book as kingdom workers. It says that we as Christians are to uh, have, a, have a kingdom message and a kingdom mission. That's Matthew 24.14. says that we're looking forward to his kingdom coming full, fully. That's 2 Timothy 4. And that we pray, the center of our prayers is thy kingdom Jesus is God's king, bringing God's kingdom, and we are his kingdom people. But the question is, 
what does this mean kind of in real time? In, in the here and now, what does this look like in my life to be a, a kingdom person living in the kingdom of God now? Well, that's where 2 Samuel is a wonderful book for us. Because here we see an actual physical kingdom of God on earth under his king David. As David is God's chosen king and Israel is, uh, is his people, we see it in real time. It's only a shadow of the fullness to come in Jesus, but it clues us in. It gives us a, a sneak preview of what it's about, how things should look. The kingdom of God lived out on earth. And when we get to chapter 5 here in particular, we see it all come together because here David is fully established as God's king for the first time. Before this, when he first came, only one tribe out of the 11 came to David. But the rest went with the false king. Abner's, uh, Saul's commander set up Ishbosheth and they, they followed him. But here we see the full establishment of God's kingdom on earth under David as we get to chapter 5. And we see three elements of this kingdom. Three elements that should shape our understanding of who we are. And the first one, the first part of God's kingdom as it's established that we see here, that's very clear in verses 1 to 5, is we see God's people submitted to their shepherd king. All God's people submitted to their shepherd king. Just look at verse 1 with me. It says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. Just stop right there. That is an amazing statement. Up to this point, there's been no unity in Israel. They, they've been fighting as, as brothers, killing each other. Israel's been divided in its allegiances, and now they've come together under David at, at, at this town of Hebron and his anointing, and they confess as one, we are your bone and flesh, David. It's a statement of total allegiance and union. We are one with you, flesh and bone with you. It's kind of like saying, we're your blood brothers, we might say today. You're one of us. We're one of you. There's no separation. But more than a statement of unity, note that it is a statement of complete submission. They say, we are your flesh and bone, David. We're your body. In other words, you're the head. We are the flesh and bone that serve you, like the arms and legs being directed by its leader. We come in total submission to you. This is so crucial to understand about the kingdom of God. This is why we pray, or this is what we pray when we pray, thy kingdom come. We pray that people, God's people, would submit their lives to his king, Jesus. This is the heart of what it is to be a Christian. This is why the church today is called the body of Christ, and he is our head. We are people unified as we submit to our king, our head, our leader, Jesus. 
Now, I'm stressing this because I, I, I think this simple idea has gotten a little confused in our culture, especially our sub-Christian culture. It's blurred the idea, and people have gotten confused. People speak of their Christianity in very intellectual terms. They, they kind of use the word believe in that way. They say, I've come to believe in Jesus, and that sounds very good. But often what they mean is that they've come to a place where they now accept his existence and his resurrection as a reality. They believe. So they are Christian. But of course, the Bible says even the demons believe in that sense. They know the truth. They know the reality of Jesus. That's not enough. Others describe their Christian faith in, uh, in, in kind of uh, this, this fuzzy way. It's not a real biblical phrase, but we use it. We say, I've accepted Jesus into my heart. We encourage our children to pray this way. And I get the sentiment behind it. But what does that even mean? Often it can actually reflect sort of a superstitious, subjective leap of faith in which I, I allow Jesus into my heart. Right? So I can get into his heaven, I guess, or he will make my life better. And for some, over time, this becomes a means of keeping Jesus in his place. So that although they are intentionally not maybe living in obedience to him in areas of their life, that doesn't matter because they know they're Christians because they've accepted Jesus in their heart. You see, having him as their, in their heart actually kind of keeps him from being their head. They've got him in his place. But here, the clear biblical language of coming to God's king so as to be part of his kingdom is the language of submission. Full trust, giving my life over to him, to his will, to his service, making him my king, my head, my leader. Now, I know the language of submission is not very popular today because in the sinfulness of our world, it's often associated with oppression and abuse. We don't submit to anyone because that's, that's too vulnerable. We need to be in control. We need some checks and balances. That's, that's what America is about. No king, a republic. But look at the nature of David's kingship here. Look at what they recognize as they come to submit to him, what they recognize about him. Look at verse two and three with me. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince, which is basically the, the word leader, and you shall be prince over Israel. There's two things being said about David as a king here. First of all, it's saying he is their savior king. When they say that even when Saul was king, David was the one who led them out and brought them in, 
That's actually military language. It's used throughout the Bible, but if you flip back actually to 1 Samuel 18, I want you to see the language here. 1 Samuel 18, verse 13. Look how it's used here, and you'll understand what they're saying. This is Saul speaking. So Saul, 1813, 1 Samuel. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him commander of thousands. That's David. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. They are saying, you, David, were always the one who fought for us. You were the one who defeated our enemies. You are the one who has always saved us. And of course, we could, we could give so many examples of this from David's life. The most famous one is the David and Goliath story, right? Where Saul is afraid, his commanders are afraid, all the people are afraid, while Goliath is out there taunting Israel, and David, the little shepherd boy, steps up and defeats their enemy for them. He gets the job done. He saves his people. This king they are to trust and submit to is their very savior. But more than that, they recognize that David has been designated by God as their shepherd king. He's not just their savior king, he's their shepherd king. We see that in verse 2 as well. And this image goes beyond salvation from enemies to everyday life, right? David is the, the shepherd. He's the one who will tend to their needs. He's the one that will make sure they're nourished and protected. He will guide them in the way they should go. As it says in Psalm 23, the good shepherd leads his sheep through the dark valleys, the hard times. He leads them to still waters and to green pastures so they may flourish as, as his flock. And of course, David knows this role very well. He was literally chosen out of a field where he was tending sheep. And now he is God's shepherd king. They see it. You see, this isn't such a hard king to submit to, is it? To trust, to give their life to, because his authority, his power, his headship is for them. In fact, that's exactly what David says when you get to verse 12. Let's skip ahead as he sums things up and he says this, chapter 5, verse 12. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he exalt, has exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. They are submitting to a savior, shepherd, king who lives for their sake that they may flourish. That's what is at the heart of God's kingdom today. This is what we are praying for and living for. We pray when we pray, thy kingdom come. We are praying that people would come and submit their lives, their flesh and bone, all that they are to God's ultimate king. Jesus Christ, our Savior King, 
who has already defeated our greatest enemy at the cross. He's conquered Satan and sin and death. He saved us. Our shepherd king who guides and nourishes our lives by his spirit. He said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. This is the heart of the kingdom of God in this world now. We get confused with this term. It's not about a certain political system. It's not even about a Christianized ethical society. It's not about peace and harmony in this world. It's about God's people submitting fully to his shepherd king, bone and flesh, all that we are. This is our unity. It's what it is to be the body of Christ, to be part of the kingdom of God. You have to ask yourself, we should all ask ourselves, is that where we are today? Are you truly part of the kingdom of God? Have you really submitted your life fully over to King Jesus? You know, what's interesting to me, when you look at the larger narrative here, the, the process it took for the Israelites to come to full submission to David. It didn't happen overnight, did it? It took a long time. For years they were following a false king, weren't they? Most of them were following Saul and his cronies. Saul looked good. Head and shoulders taller than everybody. He seemed to have all the power. He had all the trappings of worldly success. He was easy to follow. But then at some point they started to see the truth that David was the real Savior, their true king. If you're with us for the series, you know that Abner came to David. If you flip back to chapter 3, when he was betraying Ishbosheth. And this is what he said in chapter 3, verse 17, to Israelite, to their leadership. He, this, chapter, three, verse, chapter 3, verse 17. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. For a long time. They started to realize David is the king they really need, they really want. But they haven't been doing it. Why not? You see, as their eyes were open to the truth and they started to seek David, they started to know he's the king we need, you read on and they say, you're the good one. But they wouldn't act on it. They were kind of stuck in the convenience of Saul's kingdom, in the safety of numbers, in the habit and the status quo. And Abner challenged them to bring it about now. Make it happen. He's calling them to submit to David. But of course, it wasn't until all their options were cut off, right? Until Saul is dead and Abner's dead and Ishbosheth is taken out. God cuts off all their options, and then they do what they should have done long ago. They come and submit to their true king, David. 
And as readers, as you're reading this, it's kind of painful to watch. We're like, come on, he's, he's right there. He's just waiting. Your Savior, your Shepherd King, God has provided him. And I think it's a lesson, right? Where are you at? Have you known the truth for a while? You know that Jesus really is the king you need. You know it. You know you need his salvation. You know he need his shepherding. But you're just kind of stuck where you are. Giving your allegiance to someone or something that's hopeless, some false king or idol that just keeps taking from your life. What's stopping you from coming to Jesus? He is the king for your sake, who came to serve you, give his life for you. As Abner says, bring it about. Come to him. Now, there's a second element of the kingdom of God, as we see it developing here under David, that, that's still very relevant today. Not only do we see God's people submit, come and submit to their shepherd king, but we also see in the next verses, verses 6 to 10, God's city established and built. His people come and submit to the king, and his city is then established and built. Let's read verses 6 through 10. And the king and his men went up to Jerusalem against the Jebusites and the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. See, God's kingdom is not just about his people coming under his rule. It's about the place of his reign as well the home of his people. The first thing David does after being anointed king by his people is go and conquer Jerusalem. He makes, he makes a special place, a city for his people, the central place of his power and rule. It's always been this way when it comes to the kingdom of God. We saw it in the very Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, God's people. What did he give them? Special place, the garden, the place of his rule. Then God promised, when, when, when they sinned and, and that fell apart, God then came to Abraham and he promised them to make them a new people. And he would give them a place, a promised land, where he would rule over and bless them and bless all the nations through them. And actually, right here, we see it coming to its full fruition. As, as, as this, he sets up his city and his king, the city of David, the new home of his people at the center of the land. You see, up to this point, what you have to realize, up to this point, Jerusalem has not been a very significant city for Israel. It's just been another city, but now it becomes central to the kingdom of God on earth. And note three things about this city 
of God. First of all, it's a place where all defiance of God's king, all evil rebellion is put down and eliminated. That's what this whole situation with the Jebusites is demonstrating. They, they mock David. I don't know if you noticed it. When David come, is coming to attack the city, they, 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 they say, he can't, he can't take this city. We only need an army of, of a blind and the lame to stop you. You don't stand a chance. And it was quite a city to try and take. It sat up on a hill. There have been many attempts. So they are arrogant. They are secure. And they say, we'll fight you with our cripples and our blind. But David has a plan to use the water shaft to make a sneak attack. And it works, and his army overwhelms and defeats the Jebusites' army, the army of the supposed blind and lame, but really it's just those in absolute defiance of God. And he says he hates their souls. It's not the actual disabled people that he hates. People get confused there. It's those who defy God and his people to the bitter end. He's taking this term of mocking, and he's turning it back on them. He's fighting their army of supposed blind and lame, but it's the rebellious people that he's fighting. Those who mock God with their lives and defy him. They are the truly blind and lame. They do not see, and they cannot help themselves in their situation. Jerusalem becomes a city where such spiritual ailment is gone as all rebellion against God is, is put down. All rebellion against his king is eliminated. It's a holy city of God where everyone is in submission to his rule. But more than that, note that it's referred to twice here as a stronghold. A stronghold of Zion. Uh, it's this secure place of God's people. It's the center of, of his promises of, of rest. Note how he says in verse 10, and David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. David and thus his house, his people, flourish and they grow stronger and stronger because God, the God of armies, the God of all power, is with them. They are secure and safe. They are home with their powerful God, their stronghold. It's interesting, this is the first place in the Bible that Jerusalem is called Zion. That will become this profoundly evocative term in, in the Psalms and the prophets, representing all the hopes of Israel. When they were down and out, they would dream and sing of Zion, that holy hill where the city is. The city of David, the city of all God's promises. What you need to understand is that this physical city, Jerusalem, and the kingdom of David will ultimately struggle and even fail. We see a hint of this in our passage when in verse 14 it speaks of David taking more concubines. It's that very language that was used of Saul and Saul took and he took and he took. Now David takes. 
And it actually becomes the downfall of the kingdom. The very thing will be his, his son's undoing. We get a hint of it right here. But although Jerusalem will fall, the hope of Zion, the city of God, that will remain. The people of God will look forward to its restoration. They will cling to the promises of Zion, knowing their God will bring restoration. He will bring his people to their city, their city where he rules, where his people are in submission, a city of promise. And it's the same today. The kingdom of God is made up of people submitted to God's king and people with the hope of God's city. The hope of Zion. You see, as we've come to Christ, submitting our lives to God's king, his Davidic king, the true king, the scriptures tell us we are now citizens of his holy city. We are inheritors of all that's, that's his. That he's there preparing this place for us. Hebrews 11 verse 10 says this, this is what our lives are about. We look forward to the city whose designer and builder is God, the city that is to come. And then in Revelation, we get a sneak, when we get a sneak preview of the end of days. And what do we see? We see the city, this city, the new Jerusalem, coming down in the new creation when God's kingdom comes to this earth as it is in heaven and I just have to read it. It's one we always got to keep before us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And you skip to verse 22 and it says this. And I saw no temple in the city. For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will all nations walk, and all the kings of the earth will bring their glories into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What a city where God is reigning with his people and everything is put right. It's a holy city where there's no rebellion, no evil. It's an intimate city where God the Father is dwelling with his children. It's a pure and clean city. No darkness even exists there. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. It's so safe that its gates are always open. Talk about a stronghold. And all pain and death are gone forever. This is our hope as God's kingdom people. Zion, the new Jerusalem, 
the city where Jesus reigns as king. We look forward to it. It's our future home. My friends, this should change everything about how we live now. The world has no hope. But not us. Ours is secure and wonderful. So as turmoil and injustice and wickedness seem to prevail all around us, we don't have to hang our heads and just kind of stoically endure life, do we? No, we have a real hope. And as we experience the rejection of our culture and disappointment with the way our society is heading, we don't need to bury our heads and engage in the same escapist tendencies as our culture, just entertaining ourselves to death so we don't notice or numbing ourselves with libations and material comforts or isolating ourselves and throwing our hands up in resigned disgust I give up on everybody. No, we have a real hope, a joy set before us. Zion, the city where Jesus, our shepherd, our savior, is king. And this brings me to the final element of the kingdom of God that we see here. The last element for kingdom life. And that is conflict. As David is anointed king, and his people come and submit to him as their as their savior and shepherd, and he establishes his city for them, what's the very first thing that happens? Look at verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And they weren't searching for him to come and worship and bow down. No, they attacked. The Philistines, the enemy of God's people, attack immediately. And David, if you read the story there, right, he inquires of the Lord. The Lord tells him what to do, and he defeats them. But then read verse 22. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephim. And David inquires of the Lord what to do, and the Lord tells him what to do, and he defeats them. But it's just the beginning, as you read through the book, of many, many attacks by the Philistines. But that's the point. They keep coming, and it only gets worse and more pronounced as the book goes on. It's exactly what we read in Psalm 2, right? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed He set his king on Zion's holy hill, and the nations rage against him. This is what the world has always done and always will do. The human heart is in rebellion against God and his rule, and the human power structures, the kingdoms, will always be used to this end. My friends, as as we come to Christ and we submit to his kingship, And the hope of his city, we also enter into a life of conflict in this world. Those teachers who want to tell you that if you come to Jesus, your life is going to get easier and more stress-free, they're forgetting this truth at least, or ignoring it. This is why Peter says, 
to the church in 1 Peter 4, don't be surprised when fiery trials come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is why Timothy says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. There's one of the promises of Scripture. Persecution to Christians. This is why Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 29, to the Philippian church, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And of course, he's talking about the conflict that comes with the gospel battle. It's a spiritual battle. The problem is sin. The rebellious human heart against God, and the only solution is the gospel. We're not going out and fighting with guns and swords. The only solution is the good news that Jesus Christ gave his life as a ransom for many to pay for our sins, to take our judgment. He came for our sake, and then he rose from the dead, conquering death itself, and now he reigns as king in heaven, offering forgiveness and life to all who will come and bow. To all who will submit. To all who will submit to him as their savior, shepherd, king. We need to get this right. Our battle is not with flesh and blood. It's not a political battle. It's not a physical battle. It's not even a sociological battle. It's a spiritual battle. It's a battle for souls. And the gospel is the power of God and salvation. And we need to ask ourselves... What battle am I engaging in? What conflicts dominate my life? Are you engaged in the one that matters? Or perhaps just distracted by all kinds of little silly skirmishes? This is what kingdom living, the Christian life, looks like now. Submitting to our shepherd king, looking forward to to his heavenly city, engaged in the gospel battle. This is what we are praying for when we pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, make us your kingdom people, we ask. Bring us to, to bow our lives to your king. Keep us living in the hope of your city, our true home. And until then, help us to stay engaged in the only battle that matters. The battle for souls, your gospel. Come, Lord Jesus.